Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. On this episode, I'm joined by two guests to discuss a new film called Canary, a documentary about a climate scientist who's been referred to as the closest living thing to Indiana Jones. Danny O'Malley, a producer on the Netflix series Chef's Table, directed the film along with MIT-trained neuroscientist Alex Rivest. It's set to open in limited release on September 15th, followed by a one-night-only special nationwide screening on September 20th. Here's the film's trailer. In the old days, you took a canary into the mine. If it dies, then it's time for you to flee the mine. My first encounter with Lonnie, it was like I was meeting a real-life Indiana Jones. Lonnie was a visionary. He saw our global climate history captured in these glaciers. Lonnie was going where no scientist had gone before. It seemed to be impossible. It's too high for human beings. It's dangerous. There's no way you're going to drill in this remote part of the world. You're wasting your time. Science can only advance when you do things other people think can't be done. He was on a mission to find his place in this world. I had no idea what I was getting into. I had never claimed a mountain. I had no idea what it would take. This was a huge departure from usual. There was something wrong. My doctor said, you have one option and one option only, and that is to have a heart transplant. You just keep going. He was in denial. I remember watching him struggle to breathe, thinking to myself, and you're not going to survive this. Having gone through these near-death experiences, my message was to help bring together the world. This glacier started disappearing before Lonnie's eyes. He thought he could change something. If he doesn't do it, nobody would. Lonnie didn't come to climate change. Climate change came to him. If humans can create it, humans can solve it. I don't believe there's anything that we cannot achieve. The subject of the film is Dr. Lonnie Thompson, an explorer who went where no scientist had gone before and transformed our idea of what's possible. Daring to seek the Earth's history contained in glaciers atop the tallest mountains in the world, Lonnie found himself on the front lines of climate change, his life's work evolving into a salvage mission to recover these priceless historical records before they disappeared forever. He's been globally recognized for his drilling and analysis of ice cores from various regions of the world in the hopes of better understanding the Earth's climate. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum, from providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And now on to my conversation with Danny O'Malley and Alex Rivest. Welcome to Making Media Now, Danny O'Malley and Alex Rivest. It's good to be talking with both of you, and we're here today to talk about uh, this extraordinary new documentary called Canary, 
And Danny, I think I'll start with you. Why Canary? Tell us about what was it in the story of Dr. Lonnie Thompson that felt so compelling to you that a documentary had to be made? With Why Canary, Lonnie always talks about his youth in West Virginia, and he grew up in coal country. So he'd listen to the miners talk. And one thing that I think we're all familiar with is people brought canaries into the mine. And when the canary died, it meant there was gases that could kill you. There was something bad happening and you needed to get out. At the heart of this film, there's all these warnings. You know, Lonnie is a climate scientist who is warning the world about climate change. Um, His doctor tells him he needs a heart transplant. And there's this question of like, will we respond when we're warned or will we find out the hard way? And Lonnie's character is such that he ignored the warning so much. Like people told him, don't do your science. It's crazy to take a six ton drill up the mountain. Um, you know, people in West Virginia said like, don't dream too big. You're, you're going to be disappointed. All these people were warning him about, you know, seeing another world or chasing these big ideas. And that's how we are as humans is we all dream big. We all chase these big dreams and we like seek progress And when people tell us, no, we're stubborn. And so it all kind of wraps up in this way where when it comes to climate change, these glaciers that Alani's studying, he calls them the canary in the coal mine. And they're warning us because they're melting before the polar glaciers because they're in the tropics. So when they go, are we going to listen to the warning is kind of the fundamental question that this story is dramatizing. And then as far as like why make a documentary, I think my whole thing with documentaries is you want to find a character and a story where you don't have to put spin on the ball. Um, Working in documentary television, there's a lot of half-baked ideas and things where people pitch something, but the story's not there and it's heartbreaking to work on. So... I'm just always looking for a story where you just find out what happens and you're like, this already feels like a movie like this already. Like we have a hero, we have stakes and there's something that it's trying to tell us the story. And then the job becomes more, how do you bring out the truth, bring out the power and bring out, you know, the universe universal feelings of that story so that everyone feels it. And Danny, share with our listeners a bit about your own professional background in in terms of filmmaking and television producing, just so they get a sense of uh, the experience that you bring to this film. Yeah. So my background is the easiest way to put it is that I've been working on the Netflix show Chef's Table um, since its inception. I have been a story producer on it and I've been kind of a key driver on the storytelling to the point that now I'm an executive producer and run a lot of the day-to-day creative 
decision making and my my whole experience on that show is being surrounded by people who think documentary can be pushed further and the level of storytelling the level of cinematography the level of editing can all be as precise and as um developed as you can make when you make a scripted film so a lot of the idea behind canary and why me and alex teamed up was we met one day and he was like i'm a scientist and i watch science programming and i feel like we're leaving a lot on the table like it could go further and me being someone who's always loved science and loves storytelling, I'm like, yeah, like scientists used to be exiled for their revealing the truth. They were burnt at the stake. Like are there stories today where revealing the truth is creating kind of these epic levels of drama. Mm -hmm. And so we teamed up that day and have been working together ever since to kind of answer that question. And Canary is our first project to cross the finish line in terms of breaking the mold for science programming and showing people that it's more human and emotional and um, that it shouldn't be siloed off in this genre with lowered expectations, that it mm-hmm. should be held to the highest level, the way on chef's table, we hold food shows to the highest level. Like, like why not try and make the best if you're going to make a thing at all is where we're coming from. And Alex, you come from a very different professional and uh, academic background. Share with our listeners a bit of uh, your story and uh, how the story of Dr. Lonnie Thompson came on your radar and what you felt was so compelling about it. Thank you. Yeah. And I just, Danny doesn't like to toot his own horn, but you know, Chef's Table is the longest running series on, on Netflix documentary series, I think. And, uh, you know, a lot of that is his hard work there. Uh, so, um, for me, I, I grew up, uh, in science. My dad is a professor at MIT in computer science. I grew up kind of in the shadow of academia. I fell in love with neuroscience at college and ended up going to MIT to do a PhD, um, in neuroscience, studying memory systems. We would genetically engineer mice to turn off and on very specific parts of their brain and look how it affected memory acquisition and recall. So I was doing that on the academic track. I finished my PhD, I did a postdoc, but during the whole time, you know, I, I kind of had, to, I, I love to get out and adventure and go to places as far off the map as I can get. And I, I always saw that as far as I was off the map and kind of reporting back from that, there was always a group of people that were a little bit further away. And I started realizing that those people were scientists and that their curiosity had brought them to places that uh, were very hard to reach, very unique, very beautiful, um, you know, very tough environments. And I realized that there, there was something that this was not being communicated, right? That, that curiosity alone can make, make you one of the explorers on the frontier. And there was something, there was just a magic to that, that I felt like was missing. And and like Danny said, I grew up watching science television. I try to watch as much as I can of it, 
it always feels a little bit like homework. Mm. And, and, it, and it, as I, as I got into science and I met more scientists and I worked with them, I realized that the, the, the essence of who the human is, has been completely removed from a lot of science television. It's, it's mm -hmm. charismatic host puts a microphone up and says, isn't that right? Mr. Scientist. And the guy says, yeah, well, you know, could, could be dangerous. And then that's it. Right. There's no, there's no real human in there. So when I met Danny, they were having shabu shabu. And I, I just kind of told him this, this idea. And it was at that moment we decided to set out and tell a different story. Um, and so we got a grant from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation basically to prove that scientists are interesting. And so we did a deep dive. Uh, we went filming in, in Egypt with a young woman scientist who's kind of, you know, breaking through all these barriers. We filmed with a, um, an archaeologist in Belize in some of the caves. We filmed with a snake venom scientist in Indonesia uh, and a, a lion biologist in uh, Kenya. And we also interviewed 50 different scientists who had been on the field. And I came across Lonnie's story in New York Times article and reached out to him and said, we'd like to talk to you about this, this kind of TV show idea we're developing. So we got on a Skype with Lonnie and within five minutes, he had us totally pulled into this adventure story that he was telling us within 40 minutes, he had us both crying on the Skype call just about his, his life and, and how close to, to death he actually came. Um, and then at the end of it, we hung up as about an hour long Skype call. I, I turned to Danny and I said, if there's a single story we ever tell in this world, it has to be this one. Mm -hmm. And, and not only because of, of everything that, um, was enthralling and exciting about it and going to these, you know, 19,000, 26,000 foot thousand, uh, um, his story was so intertwined with climate change and we didn't set out to sell a climate change movie, but this film, this idea, his life, you know, coming from coal country, becoming an expert in climate change, being one of the first people who had eyes on a changing world and being able to report back on it because he was at high altitudes, you know, at 18,000 feet, 15 years after working there and failing and failing and failing before he figured it out, he, you know, he saw a lake develop at 18,000 feet and realized that there was something, something big happening. Right. And this, and then this, own, this it, lake developing, uh, and this is in the Peruvian Andes. This is in the early 1970s. Uh, and, and the lake was evidence of what, Alex? So there was a, a glacier coming up. So Calcaya is this glacier in the Andes. It, it was the largest tropical glacier on the planet. And it had this one piece of ice that came down into a valley. You know, we're used to seeing glaciers and they kind of, you know, have this kind of snake-like formation. So Lonnie went in the early 70s and as part of his science started taking pictures of this glacier. And then he, every year he'd go back, he'd take another picture and, and then he did no idea he'd be working at this glacier for 40 years. Uh, but within 15 years, he realized that the, the glacier had started to retreat uh, quickly up, up to the, up the mountain, revealing this massive lake at 18,000 feet. So in a, in a place that for it's very cold, it's very remote. Uh, the warming that is happening was melting this glacier, uh, very fast. And so he has one of the first time-lapse series and kind of evidence of big things changing in remote areas. And so when he first crossed over this ridge to see the, um, to see this place where he takes pictures every time of this, of this glacier, uh, foot, he saw a lake and, and it kind of shook him to his core. 
made him realize that something big was happening that we need to get a handle on. Danny, in reading and, about and Lonnie Thompson, I, I, I heard him described or I, I read that he was described as the closest living thing to Indiana Jones as a filmmaker. Uh, Danny, tell me a little bit about w- what you saw in, uh, in terms of an opportunity to tell his story um, and trying to strike that balance between charismatic figure uh, and actual hard science. Yeah, I think a um, couple of things there. One, when me and Alex first talked and he was talking about these charismatic scientists and he's never seen them represented the way they are in real life. I was like, like one of the things that came to mind was Indiana Jones. And I was like, well, Indiana Jones, like they have like car chases and gunfights and all, all this kind of stuff that I was like, we may get cool stories, but we'll never get that. But when we went and actually talked, to scientists like a lot of them had been kidnapped had been caught in civil wars we met one scientist who negotiated a peace treaty between warring tribes so he could dig up skull was the oldest child skull found in discovery so like i like ate crow on that like i was like yeah there's not gonna like we're gonna have a limit of how cool these scientists are gonna be and how great their stories are gonna be And like Lonnie is no exception. Like in making this movie, we had to make real hard choices where like he had great stories about he was one of the first scientists to go to China Mm -hmm. um, when we normalized communications with them. And he went over there and he couldn't speak the language at the time, but he bonded with all these um the Mongol people in the rural area by riding a horse and shooting a rifle and having like shooting contests with them. Cause they were in the one part of China where people were allowed to have guns. Wow. And it's just like these beautiful things where his West Virginia roots allows him to connect with people in these like remote parts of the world. And like that says so much about him and it's, and it's, shows kind of I think a fundamental thing in all stories is that we're more alike than we are different and like that didn't make the film because there was too much good stuff and like we had to find what served the larger story and focus on that on top of that even uh, Lonnie's wife is a big part of the film but like you could spend all this time just unpacking her career too because um, she took Lonnie's kind of remote drill idea and brought it to Antarctica. So while everyone was drilling ice cores near the big bases in Antarctica and Greenland, she started doing these expeditions after Lonnie pulled off getting the drill up the mountain where she went off, like dropped me off with seven people in the middle of nowhere in Antarctica where most people don't spend the night and don't go anywhere. And they drill an ice core there to get records that no one had ever gotten before. So like this world is like teeming with stuff. And one of the hardest things, like I'm used to working on chef's table. Sometimes we have to choose between this story and that story. Mm -hmm. And Lonnie has lived such a rich life and gone to so many places 
we just had to like be very smart about what served the story as the whole, because you'd put in something where you're just like, that's a cool story. And it felt like it broke the chain of the whole movie. Yep. So like people, some people would think we were crazy for pulling stuff out, but it's like, you have to assert this higher level of discipline to, you know, not do a shotgun approach of just like, here's all the cool stories we could find and throw them at you. And then like, what is this movie about is a confusing question then. So, and, and tell me uh, how old was Lonnie roughly when, when uh, Alex, when you and Danny met him and how far along in his career was he? And, and give me and our listeners a little bit of a sense of uh, the process of acceptance of his work and the urgency of his work as his career unfolded. This is Alex. I think when we first um, got in touch with Lonnie, he was 69 or 70. Um, I believe he's 75 now. And as we're speaking, he is on top of Kalkaya. So he is up at 18,000 feet. Um, so when you talk about this, what stage is he at in his career? Uh He's, and he's, he's up there with, and not to not not to throw a spoiler at yep. anybody, but he's up there with his second heart. Yes. So he is. He is. He has got a a, a heart transplant. Um, he was the only heart transplant recipient ever to go to these altitudes. He had to go in front of lots of doctors and and get permission to go, and no one could see a reason why he couldn't go. So a year after his heart transplant, he was back up at twenty thousand feet, and I think that's. You know, there's an important story about what is possible. I mean, Lonnie's story is always about taking the seemingly impossible and making it possible. But yeah, he is right now at probably 18, 19,000 feet drilling ice cores um, on Kelkaya um, as, as part of his long-term observation of that glacier. You're saying it kind of acceptance of his, uh, of his work. Yeah, I was I was out. curious the the degree of knowledge of and acceptance of the type of research that he was doing or the specific research that he was doing in Peru among the yeah. scientific community at the time that your paths intersected. The only resistance to his science, from what I understand, was kind of in the proposal stage. So when he was trying to get money to actually drill. Um, he would just constantly get turned down and and people would say, you know, this, this is just, it is impossible. Uh, this is too high for humans and the technology doesn't exist. The second he accomplished, you know, after 10 years of failing, and was able to bring back down data. He shared the data and very quickly, this has been accepted. Um, you know, the, this it's, and there are some, some issues with, you know, some of the interpretations, there, yada, yada, yada. The scientists who pushed back against him that we featured in the film mm -hmm. uh, flipped once he drilled one glacier. But then one of the biggest climate scientists ever, Wally Broker, was particularly tough on Lonnie. And it wasn't until he drilled Huascaran, which we have a scene where we covered the storm in that expedition. And when he drilled that, he he wrote a piece in nature, basically taking back all of his criticism on Lonnie. And he said, like, this expedition, you know, of these guys taking six tons of equipment up a mountain, risking their lives. And they came back with a record. I forget exactly what it showed, but it was something that was really groundbreaking to the inside baseball of the uh, 
paleoclimatologist. And he said, like, this expedition shows the tenacity of a lone scientist going against the grain can alter the course of thinking. So, like, I would say there's a degree where science is a really competitive place and people don't want to give you the credit like the idea that a bunch of scientists get together and just agree about climate change because they all just have an interest is not how science works right most scientists are looking for a reason to disagree they're looking for a hole and they're fighting like even in the 90s the um, people who studied the oceans were like climate's not warming that fast. It's not going to affect the oceans. And like now we're seeing all these things on a daily basis about papers coming out that the oceans are in big trouble. And um, so I think there's a degree where through the course of the nineties from like a lot of the climate change stuff was fiercely debated and there was a lot of rigor applied to it. And turns out that a lot of those early predictions were very good. And, um, as far as like Lonnie's methodology in the tropics, I think once he got that first ice core, it started opening up and particularly national science foundation started being like, this guy's bringing home the goods, let's back him. And that's when, more and more expeditions in the tropics happened and he filled out this like record of our atmosphere's history that wouldn't have existed had he not spent 10 years trying to drill Quokaya. So like the thing that's really remarkable about it is if Lonnie wasn't born, if he didn't have this tenacity, if he didn't keep going after 10 years of failing, like we would not have all this information where he's confirmed historic droughts in multiple continents that have only been written about in history books and his ice core records. He's found insects, he's documented volcanoes and been able to get all this, what they call like proxy information mm -hmm. of these historical things and confirm things that we only knew from books. So I, it's really beautiful, the, the fact that he persisted through those fights and we're all luckier for it. And I think a lot of the scientists who doubted him in the beginning came around to see the value of what he fought for. I think typically, and maybe it was just me, but when I hear uh, glaciers, I'm thinking of the Arctic. And can either of you talk to me a little bit about what is uh, specific and specifically compelling about the evidence that's being found in glaciers in South America? Um, either one of you, whoever wants to address this. So I'll, I'll pick that up. And I think it may be good to just step back for a second and say, you know, when, when you study ice and you study glaciers, you know, what they do is they pick a site on the ice and they drill a hole mm -hmm. into the ice and then recover a cylinder of that ice. And as you go down from the very top 
of the ice to the bottom, you're going back in time. So the, whatever snow fell last year will be near the top. Whatever snow fell 10 years ago will be a little bit further down. Whatever snow fell 4 million years ago will be at the bottom of the ice core. And so you can, you can reconstruct the exact atmosphere of that part of the planet um, by getting an ice core. So that's kind of a fundamental feature here. So in Antarctica and Greenland and the, the Arctic, where we, th- where we think of ice, uh, there's these massive ice, ice sheets and they are kind of far away from human populations for the most part. Um, and what they do, the, the atmosphere that's collected there is kind of a, a worldwide average. So things that happen around the planet, they mix and they become snow in Antarctica and you get kind of an average. Um, it tells you a lot about the the average planet history, um, but it doesn't tell you a lot of details. Now, there's this whole thing that people didn't know the term tropical glaciers, right? You don't think of glaciers in the tropics, right? but there are lots of glaciers in the tropics. They just are have, have to be in places that are cold enough. And to be cold enough, you have to be kind of above 16,000 feet. Most of them are above 18,000 feet. Peru has a huge majority of, of glaciers. And the thing that's kind of beautiful about ice cores in places like the Andes and Calcaya is that they, they contain these local histories too. So where you, and you don't get local histories in places like Antarctica. So if there are droughts or, or, uh, monsoon events in Peru, you'll pick that up in the glaciers in Peru. If there's, if there's industry being built and, you know, dust going into the air or metal parts getting there, that'll be captured in the atmosphere and be, and you'll be able to pick it up in ice cores from the tropics, because that's where people live. Things that happen in the air will get into the glacier and you cannot pick those things up in Antarctica or, or Greenland in the same way. There are some exceptions, but so what you really are starting to pull is this, these very hyper local histories. And you can compare those with the history books of how civilizations r- rose and fall, depending on water. Lonnie has this amazing paper, uh, which looked at the kind of the rise and fall of civilizations in Peru. And you could correlate it with the uh, drought and, and high rain events in in Peru. And so you can actually see why people are moving, you know, water is such a fundamental thing for civilizations to run on. And we can start to develop this kind of data. Um, the data he pulled back from Waskaran on that trip where Wally Broker kind of confirmed that this was, this was an amazing type way of science was looking at these temperature fluctuations in, in the past. And that, you know, people think of the tropics as just being kind of warm, kind of always warm at one level. There were, nine to 13 degree temperature swings in past, uh, you know, swings of climate. And that for the first time showed how dynamic the tropics can be and how much, you know, it kind of gives us a warning for how scary it can be with what we're doing with climate change and how hot it can actually get in the tropics. Um, can, you know, and so there's a lot of local data you can pick up, um, and that, that, that can tell you about, you know, life and history. Um, and the kind of, sad irony of all this is the second people started to understand the importance of these ice cores is the very time where we see them melting. Right. Yeah. And so it becomes a race against time to try to recover as many of these local histories as possible before they're completely compromised. Yeah. One more thing to mention about tropical glaciers is like Alex said, it's where the people live. You know, when we think about melting glaciers, we think about sea level rise, but there's this other factor where there are 
cities that depend on the runoff from these tropical glaciers in the mountains, like the rivers create hydropower. They fuel whole cities and towns during the dry seasons. And when these glaciers melt, there's going to be agriculture that can't grow food anymore. There's going to be cities that don't have power. And part of what's important about Lonnie's work is shining a light on that issue, because if we don't figure out how to globally support these places that are going to be losing water, those people are going to have to move. And, you know, there are estimates with climate change that go from like a hundred million to a billion climate refugees. And there's no political infrastructure. There's no treaties. There's no anything that's prepared for that. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the hard work that we have with climate change is getting the world together to prepare for those outcomes. So people don't have to move or people can, we can find a way to find new places for people that are equitable and don't lead to like political backlashes and things like that. And that's something you just don't get with the polar glaciers because they're so far away from. Yeah. It almost feels people. like an abstraction that, you know, yeah. that, that, that sounds horrible and it'd be really be a bummer to be a polar bear right now, but that's not going to impact me. Very different when no, you're talking and- about uh, vibrant human populations that are, uh, really impacted you. I can't remember whether it was you, Alex or Danny, who mentioned that at the outset, you weren't thinking about doing a film about climate change. How far into the process were you before this became self-evident? Because along with this super compelling biography uh, of Lonnie Thompson, the, you know, the, the, the film uh, presents a really um, eye-opening examination of how attitudes around climate change were shaped, um, uh, you know, over the decades, and uh, discouragingly, how actually the numbers are moving in the wrong direction in terms of the populace, quote unquote, believing <laughs> that climate change is is yeah. real. So. When did you decide as filmmakers that, you know what, this this is a story about climate change, in addition to being uh, an ennobling story of a, of a scientist doing compelling work? I can answer that because when we started doing the idea of like telling the real life Indiana Jones stories of scientists out there, I did not want to tell a climate change story because it's so big. It affects so many things. It's so politicized. I didn't want our effort to like get people connected with science to be roped into the like political misinformation ring, you know? Then the story we ended up telling was a climate scientist. And like all you can do is tell the story truthfully and focus on the science that serves the story. And when you have someone who just like started in coal country, arguably one of the ground zeros of climate change and fossil fuel production and it's definitely in the United States. And he was going to be a coal scientist. And then he went to study glaciers because 
he just found himself in the right time and the right place when that type of study was happening for the first time. And it was this exciting new thing for a guy in cold country in West Virginia to get to go to Antarctica. Um, and he just got obsessed with ice. And then like, you see how it plays out where he's just chasing ice because he wants the information in it. You know, he's Indiana Jones who just wants the relic. And then when the ice starts melting, he is being called away from science. He's being called to like send a bigger message because Lonnie is very apolitical by nature. He's a trained scientist. He just wants the facts. That's what he really wants to be doing. But the more he saw the destruction of fossil fuels, the more um, he saw these places that he knew well changing and being wiped out, the more he realized he had no choice but to start speaking up. Mm -hmm. And like he thought the data will fix it. The data will fix it. And I think part of the story we're telling is, you know, the whole world's waiting for data, but like the data is here and no one's listening and there's got to be a different way. And for him speaking about climate change and advocating for, you know, getting rid of fossil fuels is a risky thing. It's not what scientists are there to do. It's not what they want to do, but mm -hmm. everything you've seen in your life is pointing you to one conclusion and the world's not coming to that conclusion fast enough. You have to make a choice between science or a higher, more human thing, which is just survival. and. I think like one thing that's really important to me in the film is like what fossil fuel companies do is not close to anyone's heart. Like we've been convinced that we need the fossil fuels because society has been running on them for so long, but now there's a different story and there's a different possibility. And what we want is food on our table for our families. What we want is a future. Fossil fuel is not going to get us there. Fossil fuel is going to lead the planet into more and more destruction. It's going to make it harder for your family to be safe, harder for people to have food on the table. And there's another way. And I think bringing it back to Lonnie and his mission and making the impossible feel possible, I think he really gives us a roadmap for how to do impossible things. Like mm. he went to Quelkaya, not knowing what he was going to find, not knowing if it was going to be worth his time. He just saw a possibility and he chased it. And everyone told him that's crazy. It's not going to work. That's not how the world works. And he kept chasing the possibility until it became a thing that everyone accepted. And I think Across the board, that's what's missing now is there's all this possibility and there's a beautiful future we could be choosing. And just believing in that possibility and running at it is 
what we all need to be doing. And human beings are really good at solving problems along the way. But if we're hesitating, we'll never get there. To, to that, just to say, sure. you know, in terms of Lonnie setting the example of coming together is he pulled off these hard things because of collaborations with people in China, people in Russia, people in Peru. It was a true international collaboration to do a hard thing and they did it, which is exactly the message we need for, for tackling climate change is just put all the politics aside. As he says, you know, glaciers don't have politics. They just mm-hmm. melt. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's, it's to that kind of living example of challenging the impossible, but how he did it is important. Um, you know, in terms of this international collaboration. So. Absolutely. And I, I was going to say uh, just a bit ago that, you know, as the, as the film uh, advances, it begins to tell a parallel story about Lonnie's health. And when I was watching it, you know, I was thinking inadvertently, you guys have created this metaphor in the sense that you've got this ailing scientist that is treating an ailing planet. And I don't remember who says it, but I think it might have been Lonnie's daughter who makes this uh, point that's applicable to both citizens of the planet and her dad. Right. That at a certain point, you've got to decide what lifestyle changes you are willing to make for the betterment of your personal health and for the betterment of our collective health and the planet's health. And Alex, I'm wondering how far into the filmmaking process were you guys uh, before you realized that um, Lonnie's health issues is, you know, heart transplant uh, was also going to be part of the story or was that evident for you from the start? That was, that was evident from the start. And and the biggest thing that jumped off when this was in that first conversation we had with him over Skype, you have the world expert in climate change, you know, in in this branch of study telling the world, listen to the facts. He's testifying in Congress, listen to the facts, hear the facts, listen to the facts. And society goes into denial about this. You have Lonnie who's told you, you have, you you have heart failure. You can't do this anymore. You need a new heart. He's presented with facts and he goes into denial because it, it doesn't fit with what he sees himself as the parallel there was so it's so kind of, it holds a mirror up to all of us, right. As to what we're actually in denial about. And this, this is one of the reasons that his story jumped out at us from the beginning is because getting someone to be so open about their denial about something, right. That's so important to life. I mean, there, he, he was, it could have really ended up much differently for, for, for Lonnie. Um, so that parallel we saw from the very beginning, you know, figuring out the, how to best make it uh, weave into the film. Uh, yep. it, it was, it was a bit more difficult, but um, I, I, the, one of the things we talked about from the very beginning was how having a, not just a piece of hagiography, but to have something that you, you can kind of have an individual show how vulnerable they are. And mm-hmm. by showing how vulnerable they are, it allows us to see how vulnerable we are. Mm-hmm. And in order, you know, the whole point of all of this is we need to face facts and we need to deal with them head on just by not thinking about them, just by turning your head to them. They do not go away. Right. And, and they will chase you and they can be, they can be deadly and they can be really harmful to you know, billions of people. And so that, that parallel was, was baked in from the beginning. Um, and it was one of the, the, kind of beautiful things about Lonnie's story. Uh, I'm wondering if, um, 
what, if anything, from your background and your work as a neuroscientist provide you with a perhaps unique perspective on something like climate change and difficulties around adopting or uh, adjusting belief systems? Is, is there any answer or theory within the world of neuroscience around what these brains of ours are, are, are capable of? That is a fantastic question. And there is not an answer to this. I mean, I, it is why we tend towards denial, why, why we have trouble seeing the facts um, in an impactful way. I, we don't have an answer for this. Um, is part of the reason I got into neuroscience was there's a, so many big questions about who we are and why we do what we do. And we, we don't have the answers yet. There's a lot of interesting stuff about bias that seeps in and ways that, you know, media streams can, can influence you. But, but when presented with facts, why there's any kind of evolutionary rationale for this, I think is a good question. Uh, I, I don't, I don't have an answer for you. Danny, and, and maybe this is because I've, I've now seen Oppenheimer twice, but when I was watching your film, I was thinking this would make a great double feature. You've got larger than life, compelling scientists and neither films, Oppenheimer nor yours, much to your credit. There's no condescension to the viewer around the science, but at the same time, it's accessible so, Danny, I'm wondering when you were thinking about making this film, were there any other documentaries or even features that um, that you look to not as a template by any means, but almost as an inspiration uh, where you can tell the story of compelling scientists doing real science based work that is still going to be um, you know, attractive and accessible to the masses? Like one thing that was always in my head is I read a quote from Neil deGrasse Tyson, mm -hmm. where people asked him, what do you do when science is like too complicated for the viewer, things like that. And he just said, I don't talk about it. So like a secret to that is like picking the stuff that serves the story and having the confidence to let the rest of it go. Like in this podcast, we've talked about stuff where I was like, that was so interesting. I wish that was in the movie, but we'd had it in the movie and it like, you know, is something you want to get across in 30 seconds, but it took a minute and a half to explain. So we had to like, let it go. Cause otherwise you just felt the whole movie slow down. So that was kind of a driving principle at the heart of it. And then there's actually a book called the act of dramatic or the art of dramatic writing by Lajos Egri. And I'm probably butchering the, uh, the pronunciation of his name, but is it's about like more stage plays, but they talked about exposition in that book. You only want to get information on the run as it serves the story. One trick I have and I do this on chef's table all the time is if you find yourself explaining too much, pull all the explanation out and just have what happens. Mm -hmm. And then when you watch it down, you'll be like, I don't know that word. And then you'll know, okay, sometime in these 15 minutes up to this point in the movie, I need to get people to understand that word. And then based on 
what things you say, you can be like, oh, in this scene, we get like really close to explaining that term, but we don't go there because we're talking about something else. And then you push that over the edge to where it explains the term. And then when you get to that point in the movie, everyone's caught up. So it's like this weaving that happens. And then lastly, I would say like Spielberg is one of the biggest influences on me. And, you know, you look at a movie like Jurassic Park, really a movie like that. There's dinosaurs, there's science, but it's all about one character deciding that he's ready to be a father. Yeah. Like in the beginning of the movie, he's saying to his girlfriend, I don't know why you want one of those things to like the kid that called the raptor a giant turkey. And then he scared the hell out of the kid with the raptor's claw. And then there's a scene in the middle of the movie where he's like rescued the kids. They're up in a tree and he's sitting down and he sits down on the raptor's claw and like winces and then pulls the raptor's claw out of the out of his pocket and he throws it away. And then the movie ends with him with two kids under his arm, like in the helicopter sleeping. And, you know, there's dinosaurs, there's all this stuff, but really it's about someone accepting fatherhood. So all his movies are like that. E.T. is about a child learning empathy. Jaws is about Sheriff Brody being not afraid of the water. There's like a fundamental thing that a character is wrestling with and mm-hmm. all of the drama and everything you include pushes that character towards that change. And with Lonnie, all he wanted to be was a scientist and everything in his life pushed him away from science to being an advocate. So like that's kind of my center of the movie while we're developing it is what stuff tells that story and drives that story and makes Lonnie grow because anything that doesn't make Lonnie grow in some way isn't in the film. So the film is set for to be open in a limited release beginning on September the 15th, followed by a one night only special nationwide screening on September the 20th. Um, Tell me a little bit about that limited release. Have the cities been designated yet and the the, the theaters and whatnot? And I really recommend to viewers or to listeners rather that if you can see this movie on a big screen in a theater do so. I mean, it will be equally compelling watching it on television, but there's something that you just need to see. The cinematography is spectacular. The score is spectacular. The it's edited in such a way that it's, it's, it's just riveting. You're, you're tied into this, this man's story. And then of course the larger story about, about climate change. But back to my question around the limited release, talk to me, Alex, if you could a little bit about the rationale around uh, how you planned that. We have a week-long run um, in New York City, in Los Angeles, and in Columbus, Ohio, which is right where uh, Lonnie's University is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on September twentieth, it's it starts as a one-time event only. On you know, it's like a seven thirty screening, and we have something seventy plus screens uh, currently around the country. REI is one of our funders and, and collaborators on this film. And so part of the strategy for releases is, is working with them on markets that you know, people go to REIs a lot and, and, mm-hmm. and kind of like the outdoors so they can help drive traffic uh, there. 
Uh, Oscilloscope, who's our distributor, uh, this is a, a strategy for release that they've done uh, many times in the past, and it's just had a, a lot of success. Mm-hmm. We were only slated to open in 25 theaters, um, but as things have picked up and attention has gotten, we're now at 70 plus theaters, and we've just opened theaters in West Virginia and Anchorage, Alaska is coming. Uh, just there's a lot of climate groups and people who want to drive people to go see this film um, because it is it is not just a film about the facts. It's a film about the heart. Um, and it's just a different perspective on science programming, but also climate change, um, we think. But yeah, we, we couldn't be more excited about this type of, of release and kind of making it a, a event that happens. And, and as, as those theaters sell out in certain markets or all markets, then they'll open more screenings. And that's, that's kind of the, the strategy is, is these things kind of develop a snowball effect. So, uh, you know, for us, it's, it's seeing it on the big screen, like you said, is a different experience and it's, and it's a lot of fun, but it also, it's one of these things, if we can get people to come see the film, then more people get the opportunity to see the film. And in the end, what drives me and what drives Danny we think Lonnie's story has changed us. We've become better people. We've become better humans. We've realized that we need to be fighting for the right things all the time. I know this story can have that effect on people who see it. There is something very infectious about facing impossible challenges and overcoming them and being humble and persistent. I want this movie to be seen because I think it can actually change the way that people think about themselves. I think it can change the way people think about climate change. And I think it can help bring people together, which at the heart of it is, you know, something I'm very proud of, proud to be a part of, but also just, I feel the power of this story to do that. And that's why I, I, you know, I really want people to have the opportunity to see it. And so having an opportunity to talk with you about it and, you know, it's, it's just, it's wonderful. And I'm glad you've, you've been able to see the film. Definitely my pleasure. And I congratulate and thank each of you for, for bringing the, this uh, film to life and for introducing me and the rest of the world to Dr. Lonnie Thompson. The film is called Canary and we will make sure that uh, all of the information regarding that limited release and the one night only special nationwide screening is in the program notes for this podcast episode. And of course, we'll be sharing them uh, on all the uh, filmmakers collaborative uh, social media channels uh, when the time comes. So I've been speaking to the two co-directors of the film, Danny O'Malley and Alex Rivest. And I thank you both for your time and again for this film. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Yeah, this conversation was a lot of fun. Thank you. And we appreciate you taking the time and the care.